Book Six, Part One of Plato's Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Wadsworth. The Republic by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Six, Part One. And thus, Locken, after the argument, has gone a weary way. The true and the false philosophers have at length appeared in view. I do not think, he said, that the way could have been shortened. I suppose not, I said, and yet I believe that we might have had a better view of both of them, if the discussion could have been confined to this one subject, and if there were not many other questions awaiting us, which he who desires to see in what respect the life of the just differs from that of the unjust must consider. And what is the next question? he asked. Surely, I said, the one which falls next in order, inasmuch as philosophers only are able to grasp the eternal and unchangeable, and those who wander in the region of the many and variable are not philosophers. I must ask you, which of the two classes should be the rulers of our state? And how can we rightly answer that question? Whichever of the two are best able to guard the laws and institutions of our state, let them be our guardians. Very good. Neither, I said, can there be any question that the guardian who is to keep anything should have eyes rather than no eyes? There can be no question of that. And are not those who are verily and indeed wanting in the knowledge of the true being of each thing, and who have in their souls no clear pattern, and are unable, as with a painter's eye, to look at the absolute truth, and to that original to repair, and having perfect vision of the other world to order the laws about beauty, goodness, justice in this, if not already ordered, and to guard and preserve the order of them, are not such persons, I ask, simply blind? Truly, he replied, they are much in that condition. And shall they be our guardians when there are others who, besides being their equals in experience and falling short of them in no particular of virtue, also know the very truth of each thing? There can be no reason, he said, for rejecting those who have this greatest of all great qualities. They must always have the first place unless they fall in some other respect. Suppose, then, I said, that we determine how far they can unite this and the other excellencies. By all means. In the first place, as we began by observing the nature of the philosopher has to be ascertained, we must come to an understanding about him, and when we have done so, then, if I am not mistaken, we shall also acknowledge that such a union of qualities is possible, and that those in whom they are united, and those only, should be rulers in the state. What do you mean? Let us suppose that philosophical minds always love knowledge, of a sort which shows them the eternal nature, not varying from generation and corruption. Agreed? And further, I said, let us agree that they are lovers of all true being. There is no part, whether greater or less, or more or less honorable, which they are willing to renounce, as we said before of the lover and the man with ambition. True. 
and if they are to be what we were describing is there not another quality which they should also possess what quality truthfulness they will never intentionally receive into their mind falsehood which is their detestation and they will love the truth yes that may be safely affirmed of them may be my friend i replied is not the word say rather must be affirmed for he whose nature is amorous of anything cannot help loving all that belongs or is akin to the object of his affections right he said and is there anything more akin to wisdom than truth how can there be can the same nature be a lover of wisdom and a lover of falsehood never the true lover of learning then must from his earliest youth as far as in him lies desire all truth assuredly but then again as we know by experience he whose desires are strong in one direction will have them weaker in others they will be like a stream which has been drawn off into another channel true he whose desires are drawn towards knowledge in every form will be absorbed in the pleasures of the soul and will hardly feel bodily pleasure i mean if he be a true philosopher and not a sham one that is most certain such a one is sure to be temperate and the reverse of covetous for the motives which make another man desirous of having and spending have no place in his character very true another criterion of the philosophical nature has also to be considered what is that there should be no secret corner of illiberality nothing can be more antagonistic than meanness to a soul which is ever longing after the whole of things both divine and human most true he replied then how can he who has magnificence of mind and is the spectator of all time and all existent think much of human life he cannot or can such a one account death fearful no indeed then the cowardly and mean nature has no part in true philosophy certainly not or again can he who is harmoniously constituted who is not covetous or mean or a boaster or a coward can he i say ever be unjust or hard in his dealings impossible then you will soon observe whether a man is just and gentle or rude and unsociable these are the signs which distinguish even in youth the philosophical nature from the unphilosophical true there is another point which should be remarked what point whether he has or has not a pleasure in learning for no one will love that which gives him pain and in which after much toil he makes little progress certainly not and again if he is forgetful and retains nothing of what he learns will he not be an empty vessel that is certain laboring in vain he must end in hating himself and his fruitless occupation yes then a soul which forgets cannot be ranked among genuine philosophical natures we must insist that the philosopher should have a good memory certainly and once more the inharmonious and unseemly nature can only tend to disproportion undoubtedly 
And do you consider truth to be akin to proportion or to disproportion? To proportion. Then besides other qualities, we must try to find a naturally well-proportioned and gracious mind, which will move spontaneously towards the true being of everything. Certainly. Well, and do not all these qualities which we have been enumerating go together, and are they not, in a manner, necessary to a soul, which is to have a full and perfect participation of being? They are absolutely necessary, he replied, and must not that be a blameless study which he only can pursue who has the gift of a good memory and is quick to learn, noble, gracious, the friend of truth, justice, courage, temperance, who are his kindred. The god of jealousy himself, he said, could find no fault with such a study. And to men like him, I said, when perfected by years and education, and to these only you will entrust the state. Here Idiomitus interposed and said, To these statements, Socrates, no one can offer a reply. But when you talk in this way, a strange feeling passes over the minds of your hearers. They fancy that they are led astray a little at each step in the argument, owing to their own want of skill in asking and answering questions. These little accumulate, and at the end of the discussion they are found to have sustained a mighty overthrow, and all their former notions appear to be have turned upside down, and, as unskillful players of draughts are at last shut up by their more skillful adversaries, and have no peace to move, so they too find themselves shut up at last, for they have nothing to say in this new game of which words are counters, and yet all the time they are in the right. The observation is suggested to me by what is now occurring. For any one of us might say that although in words he is not able to meet you, at each step of the argument he seems, as a fact, that the votaries of philosophy, when they carry on the study, not only in youth, as a part of education, but as the pursuit of their mature years, most of them become strange monsters, not to say utter rogues, and that those who may be considered the best of them are made useless to the world by the very study which you extol. Well, and do you think that those who say so are wrong? I cannot tell, he replied, but I should like to know what is your opinion. Hear my answer. I am of opinion that they are quite right. Then how can you be justified in saying that cities will not cease from evil until philosophers rule in them, when philosophers are acknowledged by us to be of no use to them? You ask a question, I said, to which a reply can only be given in a parable. Yes, Socrates, and that is a way of speaking to which you are not at all accustomed, I suppose. I perceive, I said, that you are vastly amused at having plunged me into such a hopeless discussion. But now hear the parable, and then you will be still more amused at the meagerness of my imagination, for the manner in which the best men are treated in their own states is so grievous that no single thing on earth is comparable to it, 
and therefore, if I am to plead their cause, I must have recourse to fiction, and put together a figure made up of many things, like the fabulous unions of goats and stags, which are found in pictures. Imagine, then, a fleet or a ship in which there is a captain who is taller and stronger than any of the crew but he is a little deaf and has a similar infirmity in sight and his knowledge of navigation is not much better the sailors are quarrelling with one another about the steering every one is of opinion that he has a right to steer though he has never learned the art of navigation and cannot tell who taught him or when he learned and will further assert that it cannot be taught and they are ready to cut in pieces any one who says the contrary. They throng about the captain, begging and praying him to commit the helm to them, and, if at any time they do not prevail, but others are preferred to them, they kill the others, or throw them overboard, and having first chained up the noble captain's senses with drink or some narcotic drug, they mutiny and take possession of the ship, and make free with the stores thus eating and drinking they proceed on their voyage in such manner as might be expected of them he who is the partisan and cleverly aids them in their plot for getting the ship out of the captain's hands into their own whether by force or persuasion they compliment with the name of sailor pilot able seaman and abuse the other sort of man whom they call a good-for-nothing but that the true pilot must pay attention to the year and seasons and sky and stars and wind and whatever else belongs to his art if he intends to be really qualified for the command of a ship and that he must and will be the steerer whether other people like or not the possibility of this union of authority with the steerer's art has never seriously entered into their thoughts or been made part of their calling now in vessels which are in a state of mutiny and by sailors who are mutineers how will the true pilot be regarded will he not be called by them a praetor a star-gazer a good-for-nothing of course said idiomatus then you will hardly need i said to hear the interpretation of the figure which describes the true philosopher in his relation to the state for you understand it already certainly then suppose you now take this parable to the gentleman who is surprised at finding that philosophers have no honor in their cities explain it to him and try to convince him that their having honor would be far more extraordinary i will say to him that in deeming the best votaries of philosophy to be useless to the rest of the world he is right but also tell him to attribute their uselessness to the fault of those who will not use them and not to themselves the pilot should not humbly beg the sailors to be commanded by him this is not the order of nature neither are the wise to go to the doors of the rich and the ingenious author of this saying told a lie but the truth is that when a man is ill whether he be rich or poor to the physician he must go and he who wants to be governed to him who is able to govern the ruler who is good for anything ought not to beg his subjects to be ruled by him although the present governors of mankind are of a different stamp they may be justly compared to the mutinous sailors 
and the true helmsmen to those who are called by them good-for-nothings and star-gazers precisely so he said for these reasons and among men like these philosophy the noblest pursuit of all is not likely to be much esteemed by those of the opposite faction not that the greatest and most lasting injuries done to her by her opponents but by her own professing followers the same of whom you suppose the accuser to say that the greatest number of them are errant rogues and the best are useless in which opinion i agreed yes and the reason why the good are useless has now been explained true end of book six part one recording by james wadsworth